Hello, Chris Evans here. Thank you for downloading this week's podcast of The Best of the Breakfast Show with Sky from Virgin Radio. Coming up, the funniest of funny men, Ramesh Ranganathan, elaborates on life lessons from his new book, As Good As It Gets. The mind-meddling Darren Brown tunes us into happiness with his latest book, A Little Happier. The Horn Section's Alex Horn tells us all about season 10 and season 1 of Taskmaster on Channel 4. And the punchy Piers Morgan explains why the world has gone nuts with his new book, Wake Up, The World's Gone Nuts. All of that and loads more still to come. Now, Dapper Dave, tell us, who is the first guest? He's in a league of his own, runs his own Ranga Nation and manages to put up with Rob Beckett. Is there anything he can't do? His new book, As Good As It Gets, Life Lessons from a Reluctant Adult, is out tomorrow and here to dish out the advice is the always incredible Ramesh Ranga Nathan. Morning, Rob. Morning, Chris. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for coming in. We've all thoroughly enjoyed your book. It's it's hilarious. It's obviously a conversation with yourself uh, more than anybody else. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're saying, in the red corner, it's Ramesh Ranga Nathan. And in the, re- in the blue corner, oh, it's also Ramesh Ranga Nathan. <laughs> okay, boys, go to... I mean, that's what's gone on here, isn't it? Yeah, basically, it's just sort of uh, me kind of taking an in-depth look at myself, I guess. But it, I, well, I, I was slightly nervous because I wanted to be so... One of my things is that as I do more stand-up and as I do more writing and everything, I'm always trying to approach being as honest as possible. And so that was my starting point with this book. I wanted to be as honest as possible. But then I st- then comes the sort of worry that you've been too honest and you've presented yourself in too negative a light, really. I always have that ongoing concern. Because but... you said you discovered this when you were reading the audiobook out loud. Yeah. It's one thing writing it yes. and then editing it, then rewriting it, writing around it, and then reading it back to yourself in your head. But then as a former teacher, you, you would know this better than anybody else. You say it out loud. Oh, oh, it sounds different, doesn't it, out loud, in court? Yeah, I mean, that was exactly what happened. Because you, you, you do have this intense period, you've written it, I'm terrible at sort of going... I like the initial draft and then the redrafting and editing and stuff I hate, but you do all of that. And then you take a break from it a bit and then you come back to it to do the audiobook. And then as I was in the middle of the audiobook, I was like, oh, this has already gone to the printers, isn't it? I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't take this back, this stuff. So, um, yeah, it was the first moment where I thought, well, I have really revealed a lot of myself here. This is... Uh... Well, it's funny because you said you said, you said before you came on the end, you've just yeah. done it again now. Because you, you talked about it first of all. You said, oh, my goodness me, I've been so truthful here. And yeah. then you said, I've revealed so much about about myself yeah so there's one thing because you can be true about nothing yeah but That's you can be too, too revealing so you're are right. you worried about the fact you reveal too much or you've been too truthful about what you've revealed well i think that you know when i think i've i think that i've been truthful and um, uh, about myself which is a problem <laughs> <laughs> You know when you you know when you have you have a lot of these thoughts and ideas and 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 foibles and sort of you're self-conscious about various things and you keep that inside and you present a version of yourself, don't yeah, you? Yeah, and so yeah. when I was writing the book, I sort of was very honest about my sort of my feelings about my shortcomings and my attitude towards parenting and how I feel about myself. And you say all of those things, and then you you put that out and you think, wow, this is a this is a really honest reflection of my genuine thoughts, and I'm not sure. That's attractive. Not that I'm trying to be attractive. That ship has sailed for me. But, you know, just I, I did worry about it. I continue to worry about it. Well, let's keep saying the name of the book. It's called As Good As It Gets. And it's really, really funny. It's really funny. But also, it's really intriguingly written, actually, Ramesh. Um, it's out tomorrow. And I, I would encourage you to get it. It's, it's, a, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. It's not a 10 because that's like my best books ever. And yeah, it's, sure, you know, sure. And there's like, you know, Eckhart Tolle's up there. And Yeah, I would uh, support that. It's not one of the yeah, best books ever. You know, no, Old Man and the Sea, you know. And they're 10 out of 10. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this is a 9 out of 10. Yeah. And uh, the fact I'm even in the same conversation as those guys is Well, uh, they, is you know, books are books, aren't they, yeah. I suppose. But, um, um, you know, what's at the end of every chapter, because 
you know, very funny. You talk about, you write in chapters under subject headings. Um, but then at the end of every chapter, I noticed, this is so funny, right? <laughs> so chapter titles are, for example, uh, sex, friendship, flake, being a flake, which is really funny. Uh, the flake text that we all send to people. I don't send them anymore. That's, people say, why did you get rid of the phone? That's probably the main reason. So I don't send any more flaky texts. Uh, holidays, politeness, quality time. Then I'll miss a few out. And then he goes, role model, look after your health, alcohol abuse, uh, learning to cook, train a geek, music, get a tattoo. Really funny funny book really funny book great to dip into easy to read but quietly profound actually you think so i know so right because i read a lot of these books and you start off by talking about the fact that it's not a self-help book but you allude to the fact that you do read self-development books and self-help books and i do and i make no apology for it Mm. but here's what i thought right i think it's about chapter six or seven right and i I don't know if you realize this right but i thought at the end of uh, which chapter would this one be? This will be um, getting old, right? Okay. So at the end of the getting old chapter, I'm reading it and loving it, right? And I'm loving the fact that all you forty somethings are talking about, talking about getting old, and I'm ten <laughs> years older than you. I'm thinking, shut up, right? And the reason yeah. I'm saying shut up is because people who are sixty five are telling me to shut up, sure. and people who are seventy five telling the sixty five just everybody shut up about getting old. Yeah. You know, because you know, anyway, uh, but it makes for a good chapter. And then what I what I the thought that came to me, the prevailing thought that came to me at the end of this chapter is. Oh, at the end of every chapter, you get a bit Jordan B. Peterson. (laughs) (laughs) You do. That wasn't intentional. I don't know why that's happening. Because his book is 12 Rules for Life. Right. Have you read it? No, I've not read it. It's absolutely awesome. Right. Whether you agree with them or not, it's it's just a very, very profound read. Right. And he starts off with the premise of a rule for life. And then he takes you on this journey through each chapter. Sometimes it's funny. It's always thought-provoking. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's extreme. Sometimes you want to shout at him, you know, uh, next time you see him. But then he gets back... The last chapter or two gets back to this sort of really sort of calm, really tranquil lesson that he started with. And some of your chapters go way off piece. They're hilarious, like you say. You maybe have gone, gone too far, which is yeah. great for the reader because no risk for us. Sure, yeah? absolutely, yeah. And then, for example... Um, here, here's the Jordan B. Peterson bit of the hilarious getting and the getting older chapter is hilarious because it's one of the most paranoid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ron says this at the end. Um, sorry, Ron says this at the end. Uh, that's obviously not really you hating the house. It doesn't matter what the. Uh, that's you being insecure about them having a nice house and comforting each other by pretending the house is awful. That's what we're doing when we slag people off. It's all a desperate attempt by us to forget how utterly rubbish uh, we think we are paraphrasing it's a rank side of human nature the people who don't have that in them and seem to be truly happy for other people's successes tend to be the happiest people generally don't get me wrong they're also completely insufferable paraphrasing but they don't care so be discreet and try not to be a fool idiot paraphrasing and if you are a fool idiot paraphrasing at least try to be discreet about it so it's a really sort of calm <laughs> settling did you notice that about the chapters no i didn't actually that's every, something every chapter finishes like that right i didn't know that it's, that wasn't a deliberate thing it's just... great it's like the it's like there's two rummishes having a having a rook which is great yeah and then there's the other the, almost like the wiser owlish rummish who does the last couple of chapters? <laughs> a couple of paragraphs. Brilliant. Well, that's good. Yeah, that, I hadn't thought of it like that. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome for, for that insight. All right, well done. That's that's the brilliant. How great is Ramesh? Yep. He's just great to have around. He's, he's so cool. Ramesh Ringer Nathan, as good as it gets. Life lessons from a reluctant adult. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. He's made a career of meddling with your head, so who better to write a book about managing your mind? His new bite-sized handbook, A Little Happier, is out tomorrow, and here to tell us all about it is a brown that knows exactly how to turn a frown upside down. It's Darren Brown! 
<laughs> Morning, Taryn. Hello. You should see my front face. It's terrifying. Yeah, what do you think about the Peppa Pig story? I've never watched Peppa Pig, but I, I, that's just brilliant. Peppa, Peppa Pig's Pig. front face. Peppa Pig is I'm, coming to I'm get you. I love it. I love um, it. There is a theme park. A pe- I mean, Darren, you, if you went to the Peppa Pig theme park, you could be the only person ever, I'm guessing, that's been to the theme park but never watched the show. Exactly. What madness. <laughs> what madness. Crazy, crazy. All uh, right, this <laughs> lovely little book, A Little Happier. Now, I'm guessing, and I'm usually wrong, but here's my guess anyway, that this, this was notes to yourself and you thought, hang on a minute, these could be useful to other people. Well, I, it's actually a shorter version of a book called Happy that I wrote a few years ago, which is, is, is a popular book. It's quite a big book. It's quite a commitment. Uh, so it kind of made sense during, uh, you know, during anxious times uh, to write a, a sort of a, a condensed version of the same uh, book. So it's a slightly odd project in that sense. But it's, it's, so it's partly new stuff and partly stuff from, from the old book. Anxious um, times. Tell us, about, tell us about your anxiety, you know, over the last six months, because we talked recently, but, you know, do you have you, you, your own take on, on anxious times now? Well, it's, it's, sort of, it's been sort of all right for me, but I think even if, um, even if you're having a relatively good time of it, uh, you know, lockdown's obviously a very different thing for different people, but it can still, it still creeps in, doesn't it? You know, you feel a bit misplaced or your partner does. Everyone's relationship seems to be slightly you know odd or being being put to the test it is it is an odd it is an odd time the the book is largely about stoicism which is uh i think a very good way of um it's all about minimizing unnecessary disturbance by only trying to control the things that you can control which now, are your thoughts and your actions. Now, we, we talked uh, about this before because we, talk, we talked about, yeah, we talked about exactly what you're saying there. We actually said those words from your book out loud. And what? then I said, the word control is interesting there. So, so because there is another school of thought, isn't there? That, you, you know, just wanting to control anything, even the things you can, is perhaps the sort of first step up the wrong ladder. Well, exactly. Yeah, that, that's also a good point. There's actually two kind of opposing ideas which i think are in, in, important and and therefore weirdly compatible in a strange way which run through the book one is one is this stoic idea which is an undeniable recipe for minimizing anxiety but then there's also and and drawing your center of gravity in and becoming more robust uh, which i think is hugely helpful but there's also the opposite of that you know which is a very unstoic idea which is you know normally in life the times where we do feel most anxious and where we feel isolated and uh, like we're failing or when you know when life is hard which you know always happens at, at some point you know we're going to find ourselves there that is precisely the time when we're actually most connected with other people that is the time when we're kind of experiencing the actual weight of life it's the thing that we all share you know we all have those moments and i think this this lockdown is a very literal demonstration of that you know here we are on the one hand most isolated and on the other hand all sharing in the same thing and that's it's sort of the opposite of a stoic approach but it's at the same time it, I, I think there's a we can lean into that you know we, we can lean into a feeling of, of sharedness i think that can really help too i love that i was listening to a guy yesterday um billionaire at the age of 32 still successful now at the age of 44 um he's company's always been private he's thinking about taking it public um he was predicting who the first he says the first trillionaire will be somebody who is involved in sustainable energy he, that's his prediction but he also talks mm. about his inner madness um you know and it, his his uh, sort of his uh, seeking of happiness and he says the most important thing as far as he's concerned is talking to people now you talk about that in the book as well uh, talking to people talking to his wife talking to his kids even though they think he's a loser but it doesn't matter as long as he says <laughs> things out loud to them and they, as long as 
he can say, he says things and they roll their eyes, at least he's still saying things out loud to his children and they might be hearing what he's saying because they seem to be disagreeing with it, which is fine because at least it's la- it's landing. Then he has a couple of therapists. Mm. Um, what 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 is that's like the top three things you think are important to a person's happiness that they can do on a daily basis? Well, first of all, I think separate separate the things that are your task from other people's so the things your your thoughts and your actions are on one side of the line you're in control of those everything else what other people do what they think how things turn out uh, is on the other side of the line and the idea is just to roll with those things just to sort of decide they're kind of fine because uh, nothing bad happens if you do if you just focus on the things that you that you are in control of and sort of just let the rest just kind of be. And, and it's, it's a 2000 year old idea. And it's the opposite of what we're told nowadays, which is to set your goals and believe in yourself. And you can kind of kind of make the universe provide what you want. It's just simply uh, unrealistic. So you can have high intention, but low expectations. I think weirdly, yeah. uh, a second one might be lowering your expectations. Yeah. You know, most of our frustrations come from having absurdly high expectations of what the world is, is going to provide. So all of that's about avoiding anxiety, but I think if if that was two, the third one would be to allow anxiety to sit sometimes, to see that it has value. You don't move forward in life, you don't grow unless you recognize some something that's wrong or makes you anxious and and deal with that and move forward you know you have to deal with insecurity in order to, in order to grow that's really interesting so sitting with anxiety i've never heard that before but i like it so how how long do we sit with it for you know what because you, you don't let it fester you don't let it you know those looping thoughts that send you crazy so how does one sit with anxiety purposefully <laughs> Well, I think the, a, an image that I've sort of had for a while with this is like an X equals Y diagonal along a graph, right? So your X axis is all your goals and your aims and the stuff that you want to get out of life. And then the other axis, which they used to call fate or fortune, is just life. It's stuff that life is throwing back at you, all the stuff that you, you can't control. And what we actually live is an X equals Y line, a kind of meandering line along that diagonal, because sometimes we're on top and sometimes life is on top. So I think the key is if you just sort of make your peace with that, if you allow for a certain amount of anxiety, because that's part of that meandering line. But if, if you can also balance that with bringing your center of gravity kind of in, inside, and as, as I said, there's certain separation between what you're in control of and what you're not. Right. Now, I know you've got to go, A, because I was told anyway, um, you know, before <laughs> the show, and then during the interview, you know, about five minutes left, six minutes left. But now I really know you've got to go because this show is sponsored by Sky. And we're watching Sky News at the moment, and it's just flashed under, uh, under uh, Kay Burley's nose that Darren <laughs> Brown is coming up live at 9.30. So you, you better be off there, Darren. <laughs> Well, I better go. But thank you very much for <laughs> thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. I'll pass on the best to Kay Burley. All right, always. Uh, Darren Brown, a little happier. And sometimes all you need to be, all you need to be, is a little happier. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. Dabba Dave, over to you. He's a musical, comedic and televisual genius that married very well indeed. The 10th series <laughs> of The Brilliant Taskmaster starts tomorrow night at 9pm on Channel 4. Greg Davies calls him Little Alex. Rachel calls him My Hunky Husband. But you can call him The Awesome. Alex Horn! Yay! Yay! All right, Al? Morning, it's Bring Your Partner to Work Day. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> See, this is not fair. Because Tash can't come to, into the building at the moment. Nor can Carol, nor can our kids. It's the only reason I do the job I do is so I can spend some time with my wife. Yes, because you predicted the pandemic. And I you did. Thought, I better get a TV show so that when she's at work, I can go and see her. You know, weirdly, we did predict the pandemic. The Horn Section did a, a song about the Spanish flu four years ago. And the last line was, and the next pandemic's due. 
and it was a funny line at the time. <laughs> yeah. And now it feels like... Awkward. Oh, yeah, very awkward. We can't perform it. We thought we could perform it, you but can't. no, we can't. We can't perform it. Right, so let's talk about Taskmaster and the horn section and everything to do with you, because you're great. Uh, so Taskmaster, it hits the terrestrial airwaves. Now, people may not know what that is, but it's like one of the old-fashioned channels. So yes. Channel 4, one of the big channels. Um, channel 4 didn't exist um, when I was born. Uh, ITV did. Uh, I remember the first day of Channel 4. I remember that coming on the air. Countdown was the first programme. That's right. It's there now. Channel 5, I remember that coming on the air. Me too. Um, and do you remember the first people to be seen on Channel 5? Oh, that's a great quiz question, and I don't know the answer to it. The Spice Girls. Was it? Yeah, because they've been commissioned by Channel 5 to re-record 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Well, there were. Good point. Yeah, there's still four. But they are still all, all alive. They are alive and apparently still friends. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so we have Channel 4 still, mm -hmm. and it's still doing great business, and you're on Channel 4 tomorrow at 9pm. Now, for everybody who doesn't know what Taskmaster is, tell us how it was born, how it was conceived. The first Taskmastery thing that ever happened on the planet. So our son, my wife, Rachel Haunt, who's a newsreader, um, we had a baby 11 years ago. She still ago. is. She still <laughs> we had a baby and so I couldn't go to the Edinburgh Festival and instead I sat at home and thought of something to do. So I sent an email to 20 comedians and said, right, I'm going to do a thing called Taskmaster, where I'll send you a task every month, you've got to do it, and then in Edinburgh we'll see who won. So the very first task was deposit some money in my bank account, most money wins. That paid for the venture and uh, is still paying for, for it now. And so, yeah, that was it. It was just a laugh, you know, just 20 comedians being competitive, and that shrunk down to 10 people the next year, and then someone said, this could work on telly. Yeah. And it has, thank and, God. And so it was the, first, the first telly show mm. was with Dave. Was it with Dave? Yeah, that was uh, four years after the Edinburgh thing. Right. And Dave were the only people who trusted in the format because it was quite, not brave, but it was quite different because it's the same cast every single episode throughout the whole series, which is unusual in a panel show and uh, there's no script, it's all unplanned. So there were, there were risks. But Romesh, for example, agreed to do the first series and that set the ball rolling. It was Frank Skinner and Romesh and Roshan Conaty and a good cast that meant other people trusted it. So it's punching above its weight from a casting point of view, and I don't mean that as a slight at yeah. all. Yeah, well, it was a house of cards, really. Greg agreed to do it if Frank agreed to do it, and Frank agreed to do it if Tim Key agreed to do it, and so on. If one of them had dropped out, the whole thing would have fallen flat. And so you're like a Hollywood producer trying to get, you know, I, you know, I can guarantee this guy to be in it, you know, if the script's yeah. done over here, if we can guarantee a budget of so-and-so, then they'll all do it. There's um, a lot of wheel of dealing. I have to take people out to lunch, and I'm not very good at that sort of well, schmoozing. Or are you? Or am I? You're like the no-makeup-makeup. You're the no-sell-sell. You're the no-deal-dealer. Okay. Well, you've, you've done so many fantastic things. So, for example, you've taken a show that's been on Dave for nine series and it's gone to Channel 4. Nothing, the traffic doesn't flow that way. You look some, like some kind of alchemist. Yeah, I do feel like a con artist. Yeah. Especially with mo most of the things I do, I, I surround myself with better, more talented people. So the Taskmaster thing, I'm not the host. I've got Greg in to host yeah. it, get the other comedians to make it funny. And the horn section of the band thing, I'm not musical at all. So I've got these other musical people to make it work. It, this is a clever thing to do, Chris. Well, therefore, you are clever by your own admission. It's okay. a clever thing to do. Um, but what's interesting about when people, you get these, um, so you get these people who uh, suffer victim syndrome. So you get, um, are they, so you get schizophrenics, you get paranoid schizophrenics. So paranoid schizophrenics, are, it's, it's all my fault. Right. Schizophrenics, are, it's all everybody else's fault. And if you say to the, to the, to the victim kind of character, you know, what's, what's, 
what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong in your life? And they go, well, that went wrong, right? And then I had to go at this, and then this person let me down. And then I had to go at doing that, and that all let me down. And the the easiest first question right back is, the most sobering, is what's the one thing all those things had in common? You Phew. were involved. Oh, no. Now, it's the opposite to you. Oh, good. Yeah. Phew. So, so you say, well, I'm not really that. Yeah, but what have all these hits got in common? You're at the heart of them. I'll tell you what, it does help having a comedian on the producing side of a comedy show. There's a lot of comedy TV that's made by uh, career TV producers. Yeah. And having a comedy brain that the other comedians trust, because it's a very small little industry, the comedy industry. We've mm. all grown up together. So people like Johnny Vegas is on the new one. Uh, the new series. We've all done gigs together in tiny little rooms, so we all trust each other, and that that's really helped. Trust is very important as well. I've I've met a lot of comedians in production that didn't know they were comedians. Yeah, yeah, that's a t- yeah, that's, that's, that's t- that doesn't work so well. No, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, well, we've had fifty comedians now in the show because it's the tenth series, and mm. and we really. It's a real sort of honour to get to know those people really well. Each one feels like a school year and you graduate with them and, and you do find out every little detail about their life because they do the tasks <laughs> and then they sit in a little room and, and they spill the beans. So I, I know some secrets. Well, good luck to you, my friend. Thanks, Chris. Can't wait. 9pm tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks again for letting me come on your show. You're always welcome. And you can catch up on the first nine now via all four. That's correct. All the episodes are there. That's hundreds there for you to enjoy oh there's a kids version as well at 5.15 on E4 on Sunday afternoons it's not it's just bleeped so it's not different <laughs> but it's not there's no Good. swearing I've been saying that for ages about Who Dares Wins the SAS show they should do a non-potty mouth version of it and people have been saying that about my podcast so what am I I've not learned I haven't learned anything <laughs> right gotta go ta-da everyone well done Good luck. Thanks, Chris. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We've heard, you've heard, we've all heard. From three top-notch guests already, but there's still so much more to come. Comedy colossus David Baddiel tells us about his new kids' book, Future Friends, Super Cool, Sue Perkins, chats her directorial debut in the new series of Urban Myths for Sky Arts. Hollywood superstar Julia Stiles discusses returning to Riviera for Series 3 on Sky Atlantic. And astronaut Tim Peake gets the stars aligning in his new autobiography, Limitless. All of that and more still to come. Dapper Dave, over to you for the big intro. Uh, according to him, being woke is a joke and we need a decent lashing of liberalism. His new book, Wake Up, Why the World Has Gone Nuts, is out today. So without further ado, batten down the hatches. Snowflakes beware, it's the masterful media marmite, Piers Morgan. Good morning, Piers. <laughs> Good morning, chaps. Lovely to see you. Nice to see you. Um, I've been promising the listeners that I'm going to try and get the, the, the nice Piers, the lovable Piers, the funny Piers, the charming Piers, the Piers that I know and love. Um, how do you feel about that? 
who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'd love to do that because there's so much serious stuff that's been raging all year and I've been finding myself getting so angry about stuff connected to the pandemic and to world leaders and Trump and Boris and all this. It would actually be quite nice to talk about stuff okay. and slightly uplift people. Because I've encouraged people to buy your book even if they don't like you, you know, because it's really important to, to listen and to read and to watch things from people who you don't agree with because there's not enough of that going on nowadays. Um, and I've said to people, you know, even if you don't want to give Piers Morgan any money or anybody to do with him, <laughs> i.e. his publishers, go to a bookshop and re- just read the intro to this book. The intro to this book is better than most books, and I'm not blowing oh, smoke up, you. but it's really good. And also the first two pages of the intro like an intro to the intro, yeah. which is about the world going nuts. Yeah. So, so many questions, Piers. Here we go. Um, the world's always been nuts. Yeah. You sound like you're surprised by this, but, <laughs> but it's been like that for tens of thousands of years. It has. What has concerned me about the way uh, liberalism has gone, and I I identify as a liberal. You know, I'm, I've edited the Daily Mirror for 10 years. Dun, dun, dun. My, my instinctive gut feel to stuff is, is liberal. And what's really struck me is, of course, the, on the right, the liberals scream about the right-wingers and say they're all intransigent, self-righteous, they think they know best, and so on. So I wasn't going to target them because that's a familiar battleground, and that's been raging now on social media for years. What's more interesting to me is what's happened to liberals, and especially this woke element of the liberal crowd and it's become in my view really weird and insidious and antithetical to liberalism and I explain in the book in that intro the history of liberalism and what it really should be about it should be about fairness and tolerance a desire to have democratic debate a desire to be able to sit opposite somebody hear a view you completely disagree with maybe even find offensive but actually tolerate somebody's right to have a different opinion and maybe engage in a debate where you both learn something and at the end of it reach points of consensus agree to disagree about other stuff and go down the pub and have a pint that's gone in oh, it's this gone, country it's gone completely um, i mean lots of people say you add fuel to that fire i say it myself about myself in the book that I've, there's no question when you've got you know i've got 7.6 million twitter followers not that i'm counting obviously it's not about size <laughs> although it is actually about size um but i when you've got that sort of platform and to put it in perspective when i left the mirror in 2004 they had about two and a half million readers so it's a gigantic platform and sometimes you can forget that and you can pile in on these culture war stuff and before you know it you're fueling the fire and i've definitely done that um it's really a clarion call to all liberals including myself to say can't we just now just reset the pandemic yeah surely will reset many many things for many people Uh in different ways and I think liberals, and especially woke liberals, have got to ask themselves whether cancel culture, which is their preferred mechanism for shouting people down, is to cancel them, ruin their lives, end their jobs, and so on. Is that liberal? Is right. that actually what liberalism is? Let's talk about COVID a bit, right? So mm. uh, newest theory I've heard uh, as of yesterday is that, and it's only a theory, it's only, it's only a school of thought, and nobody's saying it's right or wrong, is that if you look at pandemics historically, back to the Spanish flu and the ones in between, they all last about 18 months, yeah. and this was just always going to last about 18 months. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a merit to that. I mean, the difference between this situation and the last big pandemic in, in 1918 was that then people weren't flying around so much and yeah. transmitting it from country to country. Um, but there's a logic to thinking that within two years maximum, this blows itself out. I mean, I think what's really important is that we all now basically admit we don't know anything. Uh, everyone's turned into an expert epidemiologist. Even the epidemiologists who are experts don't agree with each other. Yeah. So the idea that anyone can say with absolute certainty this course of events is the right one, this is wrong. What you can do, you can hold a government to scrutiny over every single decision and you can compare uniquely, in this case, 
all around the world and you can see other countries and see how they've handled it and you can compare. And by that comparison, as I keep telling people, look, you can spin it any way you like, but we have the worst death toll in Europe and we have the worst economic meltdown in Europe. These are two undeniable facts. You don't have to be on the left or right tribe to be able to agree we've had a massively bad pandemic so yeah. far. And as we make decisions now, which are huge decisions, another lockdown, do we do it regionally, nationally, whatever, we are trusting the same group of people. And that's what concerns me about this. I, I, I think trust in this government and in Boris Johnson and in Matt Hancock and others is at an all-time low. And that concerns me about the public's willingness to actually listen to anything they say they've got to do. But so I was listening to something yesterday about science and about the fact that, you know, scientists never deal in fact because they, they don't... They, they think the, 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 the scariest F word in the English language to a scientist is fact mm. because they don't prove facts. They try and eliminate doubt. And the best they can ever do is make something as least as least doubtful as it can possibly be. So the whole that's why it's all confusing in the first we place. We had a, a brilliant scientist on yesterday. He's, he's one of the top oncologists in the country. He's actually saved a member of my family's life in the last year in a miraculous way from stage four cancer to saving his life. So I know how good he is. And he argued blind, blindly against any form of lockdown and gave a very compelling set of reasons why. Then we had two other scientists with him who were equally eminent in their fields, arguing that everything he just said was completely wrong. So the idea that people on Twitter know more than any of these people <laughs> is obviously ridiculous. Okay. And yet every day I get these you know, amateur epidemiologists informing me of their latest theory. The truth is, I think we just have to accept things are going to be rough and as you said at the start of this little uh, bit of chat probably for a total of 18 months to two years and then one of a variety of things may happen we may get a vaccine although we never got one for hiv and we've never had one for any coronavirus but the, the signs are that because of the concerted global effort to get one we may get lucky and have one or more likely, I think, that may come first is we get drugs that stop people dying, as we did with HIV. And again, because every scientist in the world is trying to crack the same thing, we're already seeing drugs now having a material effect on stopping a lot of people from dying. That seems to me a more likely scenario. The book is called Wake Up by Piers Morgan. He starts his book by talking about how he's a liberal, not to wind you up, because he is, and I hope that came across in our conversation just now. Just my last question before you go. Um, do you, how many people do you get on GMB thinking, I have more things to say about this than my guest? Um, because I've just got to tell you, it was the opposite for me over the last <laughs> oh, 45 you, minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's, listen, you and I meet a lot of interesting people. I think we have two of the priv most privileged jobs here, here. imaginable because you can meet anyone from eminent scientists to, you know, soap stars to whatever, and they always surprise you. And people are interesting. You know, we're all unique in our own little way. People are fascinating. I'm fascinated. Really, what drives me is a fascination with people. And I think you're the same. Good. I can't wait for the next um, chapter of the Piers Morgan story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I won't be watching on Monday, but and hopefully and this is what we said. Because I said, there's another side to Piers and I want to get it across. And I said it on the radio between seven and eight. And then I said, but I don't want him to come across too nice and too likeable because <laughs> you're going to watch his blimmin' show instead of listening to ours. Because <laughs> a lot of people said, well, we used to watch him, but we can't stand him anymore. So now we're to you instead. I could have pushed him back in your direction, Piers Morgan. <laughs> Actually, he's horrible. He's ho this is all an act. You know what? I prefer that last line because the rest of it's quite brand damaging. Yeah.
Sorry, can only apologise. I'll see you in court. Thank you, Piers. Thanks, Chris. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. His new book sees a time traveller visit from a future where climate change and viruses from mutant animals mean no one can leave their house, which is, of course, ridiculous. Future Friend is out now, and here to leaf through its pages is the mighty mind of the brilliant David Badil. Yeah, fortune teller. Um, Hello. The prophetic David D- David Badil. How did that happen, then? Well, I'm not that much of a fortune teller, because last time I was on this show, uh, which I think while I was writing this book, yeah. I was announcing new gigs. Do you remember that? Yeah, I did. I came on this show. You made fun of me uh, for the <laughs> temerity of saying, I'm going to add gigs to my tour, because yeah. people are definitely going to be going to the theatre. And you were quite right. Those gigs never took place. But nonetheless, this book, Future Friend, yep. right? I was writing it in January, and I don't claim to be Nostradamus, but nonetheless, before anyone had heard of Hans Face Space and all that, I predicted a future where things are really bad, no one can go out, there's diseases everywhere, climate change is really bad, whatever. Trouble with that was, that's in 3020 in the book. And what I wanted was for my heroine, Pip, to come back from that time. She accidentally steps into a transporter that she thinks is going to take her somewhere else in the city. It takes her to 2020, or it did in January. Then I thought, (laughs) what I wanted to do is go out, have a fantastic time, meet lots of people, go to parties and that. She can't do that. So do you know how I fixed it? Come on. Take her back to 2019. Good. Yeah. Genius. It's a simple fix. So, so the dystopian um, sort of uh, um, unwelcome, you know, disaster-ridden hinterland is not a new literary idea, is no. it? I mean, that's not at all. It's uh, not. And did you, did you go all the way to 3020 um, just to hedge your bets because you thought it might have happened by then? No, I think it just sounds like a thousand years. That's yeah. part of the thing. Is it's a kid's book, you want to paint things quite large. Yeah. So I thought a thousand years in the future. Yeah. It's now a thousand and one years in the future. I think that's okay because of a thousand and one nights, you know, the whatever it is. Yeah, hundred and one down Yeah, there's something about and one. Binary table. Exactly. It works quite well. Yeah, it's fine. But yeah, I mean to be honest with you, even though, as you say, the dystopian future universe is not a new idea. I remember actually writing, oh, yeah, what about mutant viruses? And I think I even say in it that some of them have come from animals that have evolved in weird ways. They've all well, come but... from that, haven't they? No, they... no, in the book, though. No, but they've all co- haven't they all done that anyway? But all viruses? Yeah, I think, I all, I think all viruses have come from... Uh, all pandemics have come from... Uh, Animals. Uh, humans trying to domesticate animals in one fate form. Is that animal. right? I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, again, not that new then in the book <laughs> is what you're saying. But still... I'm trying well, to take politely. <laughs> yeah. No, but still, as I was writing it and as things started to crash in, yeah. I did think, well, what I was planning here was for this to happen in a thousand years, not next month. Yeah. So that was really weird. It's so it's so unfair on you because we were brought up with TV shows and movies like Space 1999, yeah. which were going to fall within our lifetime, but yeah. then seem so far in the future, you think all oh, this is going to happen, and of course they didn't. You know, uh, Space Odyssey, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, same kind of thing. You think, yeah. well, hang on a minute. No, they were always... I mean, when I was a kid, which was the same time as when you were a kid, mm. 2000 seemed like, well, that's oh. the future. That, that's, it's going to be hoverboards. Well, Wednesday it's... was quite the future, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, just the fact there was going to be a change in the numbers, yeah. I think, from 19 to t- t- 2, yeah. that made us think, like, well, obviously that's going to be hoverboards, that's going to be time travel, yeah. it's going to be... And then it wasn't. 2000, as I remember, was mainly the Millennium Dome. Well, what about... But this is because we were misled and brainwashed by the blimmin' BBC. Tomorrow's World. Correct. <laughs> it wasn't even next next week, it was tomorrow. This yeah. is going to be t- tomorrow's World. So Thursday night you go to bed, you think, well, 
can't wait for Friday. Yeah. We just watched this program. All this stuff's going to be available. Although, to be fair, if you actually go back and watch Tomorrow's World, yeah. it's mainly a bloke called William Woolard in a beige suit yeah. saying, look at this. And it's like a very big synthesizer <laughs> or like a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Yeah. And you think, like, well, that isn't what happened, is yeah, it? But also the irony of going back to watch Tomorrow's World. Yeah. I just love that as a concept. And what a concept. That, that is an amazing concept. Uh, so your daughter is reading... She's six. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, we give her books to read, mm. you know, kids' books to read. You know, and they're fine, like the Oliver Jeffers book. Oliver Jeffers is a genius. Of course yeah. he is. He was on the show he last is. week. I love him to death. I'll always worship his kids' book, Alter. And we have all his books, and we're now still reading our favourite books that we've been reading for the last 10 years to all our kids, to our littlest, to the twins, being what? Ping and Pong, who are two, which is fine for Mary. But David, this book, it, this, David's book is not a picture book. Mm. It's a proper book. It's a big, thick book. It's it's thicker than most books that you can find in, on the planet. Members she's of, six. Members of the production team who are not parents. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she's our resident kids' book reviewer because she she's still sounds cute. very tired. Cute. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. once she stops sounding cute, well, you know, she'll lose the job. But yeah. currently, um, when she's had a little like story at bedtime, mm. and then I, I, I surreptitiously turn on the iPhone, I say, what did you think of that, Mary? She right. sounds really cute. So it's not... Put a play Sounds on the lovely, air. yeah. Uh, and I was worried a little bit, and I said, "Well, I'll give it a go." But a six-year-old girl is not target market for this book. It's for I would say eight, eight. Yeah, seven, I mean, eight. I mean, you know, I don't want to impugn your six-year-old. I'm sure she's very bright, but I do have some six-year-old readers who come up to me. They tend to be very proud. Oh, so he doesn't want to stymie sales. Ha- ha- having said six-year-olds that, sometimes I'll... come up to me and say, you know. My older brother loves you, blah, 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 and I can read you. And, yeah. and they're very proud of that. Well, she needed me to read it to her. Right. But she I'm really sure. loved I, it. I'm not sure Hang she on, did. Chris spoke over that really important bit. Sorry. Can you just say that again? <laughs> <laughs> she I'm re- not sure she... <laughs> We read it. I'm we not... read it last night. Mm. We started. We started with it. She loved the idea. Yeah. And this doesn't come through on her review at all. <laughs> she loved the idea oh. that you could program what your dreams were. How far have you got in the book with Mary? That chapter. That chapter. Okay. Yeah. So it's a review of the first chapter. Yeah. Okay. Great. Is that it's okay with you? I'm okay with that. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. So this is a first-hand box-fresh review of the first chapter of David Bedell's brand new book, Future Friend, uh, which is out now in hardback, ebook, and indeed. Audiobook at most be- be- good booksellers. In fact, if they haven't got it, they're not a good bookseller, yeah. to be honest. It's a chapter book, grown up. It's really, really imaginative. And I, and I really want to go on the long slide from the clouds. Come on, how cute is that, Dave? <laughs> that's unbelievable. You need to take her with you wherever that's, you go. That's so fantastic. I love Mary. She's great. Well, so, she loves you. I want her to read, the, or you to read to her the rest of the book and, and, and fax me. Fax me, I've said. Uh, a review. I don't know why fax I said fax. Well, that's, well, what that's what it is. And also, I've gone back in time. Right? David Baddiel, Future Friend, is very, very good. It is. It's excellent. Mary it says so. It's Mar- Mary says so. Everybody buy it. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you. Chris. Goodbye. Bye. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you very much. Come on. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. A brilliant writer, performer and presenter. Our next guest can now add director to that impressive list. Urban Myths, Joan Rivers and Barbara Streisand is on free to air Sky Arts tomorrow night at 10pm. And here to tell us how it all came together is a lady that's gotten Martin Scorsese quaking in his boots. It's the super Sue Perkins. Morning, Sue P. 
Hello. So Joan Rivers and Barbara Streisand tomorrow at 10pm, Sky Arts. Sky Arts is now free to air, everyone. Well done, everyone yes. at Sky What a great decision, Sky Arts. Uh, it's not cheap to make, by the way. You know, it takes about 50 million quid a year to make this channel uh, work. And they're giving it to us all for free now. It's on Freeview Channel 11 and FreeSat Channel 147. And tomorrow night, gracing its screen, Joan Rivers and Barbara Streisand, uh, one of the Urban Myth series um, from 10pm. Have you seen any of the others, Sue? Yes. Uh, really loved Steve Pemberton's last week about uh, the young Les Dawson in Paris. Um, and I've watched quite a few from previous series. There's a very a good one about um, Bowie and Mark Boland meeting in their manager's <laughs> office to redecorate it. If you've seen that one, it's really, it's really sweet. These two legends, but before, obviously, they, they hit the big time. I, I haven't seen that one. Now I want to watch it. Why, why is it so good? Because um, they just sort of completely fall for one another. They're just sort of, they, they, they're completely different guys, different musical tastes and stuff, but they, they're just rollering this dude's wall and then realise they've got more in common. And I think that Bolan went on to be Bowie's son's godfather, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, they had a, they had a, a sort of lifelong sort of friendship after that, that meeting, is, is how it goes. So, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really lovely. If it happened or if it didn't happen, and that's the thing, isn't it? I told the one about Bob Dylan and Dave Stewart and the plumber uh, earlier on. Um, yeah. And we'll get on to yours in a second or two. So, so where, is there a list of them? Does Sky Arts have them? Or do you have to know one to then pitch to Sky and you get to direct it, maybe like you did with yours, or what? Yeah, exactly that. So, um, they, they get pitched from all kinds of different independent uh, companies. So, you know, they'll... they'll that there'll be people who have heard, you know, this sort of rumour about X, Y and Z. And what Sky do when they're commissioning, I suppose, is curate and make sure that they've got a good broad sweep um, of of stuff. And also the legals on it, because you, you know, something that's completely outlandish where, where people are still alive and going, hang on a second, that did not, that didn't happen. I couldn't just have bail <laughs> naked down the, down, you know, Trump Tower or whatever. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think they, they as the sort of overseers, make sure that there's there's a good sort of selection within the series. Right, well, as far as the, um, you know, actionable, because they're not dead yet, <laughs> thing is concerned, you, you're, you're sort of 50-50, because one of yours is and one of yours isn't. So tell us about yeah. yours all round. So, um, well, our urban myth comes from the mouth of Joan Rivers, who's sadly no longer with us, but in her autobiography, <laughs> the, um, um, we, can, we can not necessarily trust Joan Rivers, because she, like she did like to embroider her own life, but mm. she said that in the late 50s, she decided to give serious acting a go. And um, there was only one part left off, off, off Broadway, which was for Man in Black, which she demanded to play. So they, they sort of gender swapped it. And she ended up playing uh, in a love scene opposite a very young Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand has said nothing about this. They were in the same play. We know that. But um, there's no mention of a man in black or a gender swap or them kissing or anything like that. So I think it was fantastical. And Joan Rivers said it was fun uh, kissing Barbara Streisand once you'd got her nose out of the way, which is charming. So, I mean, she is so funny. If you, if you, the more you read about, about Joan Rivers, the more you admire her. She was so brave, yeah. so brave as a comedian, wasn't she? Yeah, she used to get bottled off stage. I mean, she'd go to these sort of strip joints and, you know, and, and just stand there and just be roundly abused. And um, I, I sort of didn't, didn't have very much to go, go on, really, when I started writing it. And I just wanted to inhabit her voice because I grew up hearing her wisecracking and it was just a gift to be able to write jokes for her, actually, almost, albeit posthumously. And, um, yeah, she had a terrible, she had a terrible time. And, and, but the, the nerve, you know, she never quit 
kept on going. She was, I think, bankrupt at sort of 55. Yeah. And then by 60 was America's richest woman. I know. Something like that. She's got an amazing story. I always yeah. get, I, I don't know why. I don't actually. But, you know, when I think about them, I always get her and Elaine Stritch, not mixed up, but I want them sort yeah. of to be long lost twins, you know, sisters from the, a different mister. You're right. You're right. Elaine Stritch is also fabulous. Um, and no fear, but I, th- I think underneath that there was there, there was all kinds of neurosis, particularly with Joan. You know, she she her parents were never really very pro her going on the stage. They were always slightly embarrassed. So I got a hint of that uh, in this as well. It wasn't the thing really in the late fifties for women to be standing up and you know talking about relationships and marriage and sex and disappointment. And well, all also sort of not not then you know giving a, a lady you know a, a smacker if you're of the same sex you know, yeah, in front know, of casual yeah. people. That's bannable. That's why I think it's very, very unlikely. I know, um, so, but, but very unlikely happened because they'd have shut the theatre down pretty much. You so, know, brand, yeah. But if we, if so, if if we ever get to interview Barbara and Never Say Never could happen, haven't so far. Oh, um, I, would, I would just ask her straight. I'd just ask her. I mean, what would happen? And this isn't unfair on Barbara Streisand, but I'm imagining is that you know, if you get the chance to interview Barbara Streisand, you are, you, you get a, a very a, th- a thicker than any phone book in history. Um, list of things you can't talk to her about, and this is probably on all of the pages, I would imagine. Um, this particular myth, but then I would just, I'd just sign that, and then I would ask her the question straight off, then get thrown out of the building, probably from yeah. the top floor, because you'd have to go to her; she wouldn't come to you. But at least we'd know. I'm, I'm, you know. Sure, I had a really, I had a really nice story about her yesterday, go on. which was that she was being interviewed, and the interviewer had got a real sweat on because obviously he was <laughs> panicking because he's in front of Barbara Streisand. And she leant over, took out a tissue from her pocket yeah. and dabbed his top left lip and said, we've both got to look after each other. Oh, what a yeah. queen. Don't believe it for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you heard something else. I mean, I'd be so terrified. I'd have such a dry mouth. Yeah. I'd be sort of clacking instead of speaking. I think she leaned, um, over. I yeah. think she leaned over and she got her <laughs> tissue out and she whispered in their ear, people usually sweat a lot more than this. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't. You wouldn't even. There'd be no sweating from you if you interviewed her. Um, I'd have a go, I suppose. We think you're awesome, Sue. Honestly, we do. Uh, Sue Perkins, uh, Likewise, written. Mate. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, Sue Perkins has directed and has written this Urban Myths latest instalment. Joan Rivers and Barbara Streisand did it or did it not happen? Uh, or did some of it happen and some of it not happen? Did the last bit happen um, or not? Did all of it happen apart from the last bit? Tune in tomorrow to find out what you think. Yeah, find out what you think by tuning in tomorrow, 10 p.m. Yes, I like that. Uh, Sky Arts, Freeview Channel 11 and FreeSat Channel 147 or Sky. From the usual platform. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. If you like your dramas with a healthy dose of corruption, conspiracy, and class, then look no further. Series three of the sensational Sky original Riviera starts Thursday night at 9 p.m. on Sky Atlantic. And here to tell us more is an actress who sizzles on screen and everywhere in between. It's the stunning Julia Styles. Good morning, Julia. Hello. 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 Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm good. It's not the morning for me. I know. Um, but I know. good morning. Good morning to you. You're in almost and, and all the listeners. The most north of North America, because you're in Canada, aren't you, at the moment? I am in Canada. Yeah. Wow. What's going down there? Less of the coronavirus is what's going on. So, uh, here, how? Because you talk about. By the way, happy third wedding anniversary! Congratulations and all that and everything well, else as well. Thank you so much. Uh, so you, you described it on your Instagram as um, five countries, two quarantines. How's your coronavirus journey been? Um, we are so nomadic that it's exactly that. Uh, we've been traveling so much and then landed in 
Vancouver, Canada, because my husband's Canadian and seemed like a safer place to land when uh, the everything went down uh, in North America. But we were finally landed. Okay. And you also have a rare breed of a thing at the moment called the brand new season of your TV show uh, because you made it before lockdown. We did. We finished just in the nick of time. We were in uh, Argentina, in Buenos Aires, uh, and we finished season three of Riviera just before all the lockdown happened. And uh, we're lucky because otherwise we would have, I don't know what we would have done. And also you ended up in Argentina, but uh, South America, uh, but we're looking at Venice and we're looking at Saint-Tropez. Prey. Um, tough job, Julie, but somebody's got to do it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to take on that. I'm happy to take on that burden. This season we started in Venice and then we were in Saint-Tropez and Nice in the south of France. And then we uh, spent a lot of time in Argentina. There's a whole part of the storyline that uh, we go from Venice to Saint-Tropez and then realize that the conspiracy is even broader and it takes us to South America. Yeah, I'm still with you in uh, Venice and Saint-Tropez. And now we were there as a family a couple of weeks ago because we can still go to Italy. We can still go to Venice here from Great Britain. Um, it was uh, it was, it was was beautiful because we had it to ourselves, which is not at all good for Venice and the businesses there. And I feel very sorry for them. But, um, but it was still quite busy when you were there. Now, filming in Venice, I've seen it in the Bond films. I've seen it in a few other films. How how does one film in Venice? How does one make that happen? How is that okay? It's a lot of logistics. You have to put all the equipment on boats. And it's amazing for the actors because we go to work by taking a water taxi <laughs> and we come home by boat. I think for the for the crew, loading up water taxis full of equipment is challenging. Yeah. But the Venetians were... Um, we had to, we we mostly filmed at night, and Venice is completely quiet and serene at night. But mm-hmm. I think we had to be really respectful of not waking anybody up because Venetians Venetians are kind of over it. They're like, we, yeah, I know we're city. Our city is beautiful. Get out of here. Yeah, it might be. I mean, it might be the most beautiful city in the world. What's your take on that? Absolutely. I mean, and I've been really spoiled with Riviera um, being able to film in such beautiful parts of the world but venice is up on is up on top because it's uh it's an antique city and on water i mean what's better than that it's so extraordinary isn't it It's such an extraordinary place it's just an extraordinary thought that they thought to do that have you been to the lido yes the yes um because we when we started filming season three it was the uh it was august so it was the end of the summer season and we did spend a weekend in lido and it you know it feels It feels very special. All right, so you have some new friends in season three. Uh, Tell us about your Sherlock friend, Rupert Graves. What does he get up to? Oh, Rupert is a new addition to Riviera. So so basically, the beginning of season three, for people who have watched the previous seasons, Georgina is ready to be done with her past. She doesn't, she's distancing herself from the Cleos family. She has taken on her maiden name again and has, time has passed and she wants nothing to do with her history and the legacy of that family. But in walks, she's teaching at the Cordell Institute in London and in walks Rupert Graves' character, Gabriel, and offers her a more exciting job and says basically those who can't do teach. And so so he says, come with me to Venice and we're going to track down a, a stolen Picasso and recover it. And she can't help but resist the adventure. So they they go off to Venice and he takes her on a journey there that the, then will get them wrapped up in uh, a conspiracy that is deeper and more tangled than they had ever imagined, which then brings them to Argentina and Buenos Aires. Um, 
but her, Rupert Graves is her sidekick. He's her, not even a sidekick, but just somebody that gets her to, he, he's the only person that's able to crack the, the, the shell, the veneer. And he's someone she can confide in. They have mutual respect for each other. And it's another <laughs> side of Georgina that you haven't seen. Good. Good. So she lightens up a little bit in this one. She lightens up, but only with him. <laughs> but only with him. Okay. What about things crossed for season four of Riviera? How are you feeling about that? Well, we're talking about it. Um, I know that there's a possibility of it. Sky, I'm sure, wants to wait and see how season three does. But there's definitely a possibility. And also, the biggest question is, how are we going to do a show that's so international and involves so much travel, given the current you know, pandemic? But uh, maybe a year from now, we could probably make a season four. All right. Awesome, Julia. Thank you so much for staying up in Canada, in Vancouver, to talk to us. And season three, episode one, Sky Atlantic's Riviera, Thursday, 9 p.m. All episodes on demand via your Sky Q from Thursday. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. Here comes another absolute five stars out of five book and author. Dapper Dave, over to you. Most little boys dream of being an astronaut. Thankfully, our next guest never stopped dreaming. His autobiography, Limitless, is out now and tells his quite literally out-of-this-world story. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare for takeoff as we go astronaut to 60. It's the totally tremendous <laughs> Tim Peake! Uh, astronaut to 60, Dave, one of your finest! Fantastic. Morning, Tim. Good morning, Chris. And Tim is with us in the studio. We've got an astronaut in the studio. Yeah. And we're on the 17th floor. It's not quite space, but it's on the way, isn't it, Tim? It's high enough. Yeah. It's as high as we can make it. And our, our building is next to another one that looks a bit like a rocket, the Shard. Of course it does. Uh, Tim, this is not a how to become an astronaut book, is it? Because it's a winding and wending tale. It is, it is. It's, it's how you became an astronaut. It's how I became an astronaut, yeah, which is perhaps not the not the <laughs> easiest or the right way of doing things. It's a roundabout way of becoming an astronaut. It's so brilliant. Now, you've read other astronauts' books, so tell us how theirs differ to yours or, or how yours differs to that. Uh, well, for starters, not many astronauts leave school at 18 with a C, D and an E at A-levels. Uh, so it wasn't the greatest academic start. I joined the army, learned how to fly helicopters and, and kind of built myself up from there. Uh, I think I, I've never worked harder since leaving school, but I didn't work particularly hard in those last few years at school. But you see, but you are dead clever because you're an astronaut. You have to be really, really clever to be an astronaut. So school just wasn't for you, was it? I think I just needed that focus. And uh, it was, for me, it was aircraft. Uh, and as as I had something to focus on then I was able to direct all my passion towards that and the academics then came because it, it, I needed it in order to learn how to become a, a test pilot at the end of the day. Do you have a hero astronaut yourself? Bruce McCandless. Tell us I, about him. Well Bruce McCandless, NASA uh, astronaut, he did the first untethered spacewalk from the back of the space shuttle bay untethered so big jetpack on his back out he went into the blackness of space with no tethers nothing and it went a long way it wasn't like he was just you know a couple of meters from the handrails he was out there and i just think wow uh there's an amazing photograph of it but the exposure he must have felt and if something had gone wrong with that jetpack if one of the thrusters had stuck on for example he's off he's out into the universe never coming back have you met him I haven't, no, no. Is he still around? No, unfortunately. But, How many uh, astronauts have there been? Oh, blimey. Um, so we've, we've had about 562, I think, up in space, something like that. It increases all the time. We had a couple of launches recently, um, so we might be more than that. But, yeah, we've had about 560-odd uh, people go into space. All right, now, I've got to keep saying this. Tim is on to talk about his new book. Seriously, it's a fantastic book. Uh, soldier pilot, parent astronaut, Tim Peake Limitless. I haven't read any other astronauts' 
biographies, autobiographies. So, so I wouldn't know in comparison, but I just love yours. Um, would you recommend uh, one in particular? Uh, oh, gosh, um, blimey. Uh, there's so many. Um, Neil Armstrong's his book is brilliant. Um, yeah. Yuri Garin's Road to the Stars is a lovely book as well. Have you got really. all these at home? I've got them, yeah, and yeah, now yeah, you've yeah. got yours to go with them. I know, I know. It goes on <laughs> the shelf. It seems so really cool. weird because, you know, these are people I grew up, you know, admiring and, and worshipping. And, and now I think I've got, a, got the a book up there thing. along with oh, them. Oh, my God. I'm so pleased for you. It's so cool. All right. So let's talk about um, you learning to fly because that's sort of how it all began. It did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I started learning to fly as a cadet and I remember getting into a glider for the first time and just thinking, am How I, old were you? Just gonna like it? I, was, I think I was about 14. Yeah, because you can do it really young, can't you? Yes, yeah, well, yeah, with the cadets. And and, uh, and I was just so delighted that I liked it and enjoyed it because I'd been passionate about aircraft. I'd gone to air shows and I'd built radio control planes and I was all about flying, but I'd never flown in one. And I was thinking... If I don't like this, then then it's that's a disaster because I'd set my heart on becoming a pilot, uh, but absolutely loved it uh, and no turning back from there. When did you um, get your license for flying? How old were you? I was seventeen. Right. I, I got a Royal Air Force uh, flying scholarship, so it was brilliant. They give you thirty hours of flying, sponsored by the Air Force, in these small Cessna fixed wing aircraft. Um, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was, I was up there flying before I could drive. I've never been gliding. Brilliant. I it's hear brilliant. it's amazing. It my, is... my wife bought me a, glide, a gliding lesson for a present once and we just never went and did it. What an idiot. Yeah. Ah, no, it's wonderful. Just the silence. Some people go gliding with these altimeters that, 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 that are noisy. They give you an indication of whether you're rising or falling, but you need to switch it off and just have the absolute pure silence in a glider and, and just you know, enjoy it. Getting up in the air, you know, but properly not on a commercial airline, is a lot easier and accessible, more accessible than people might think, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, nowadays, I mean, it's it's much much easier to get get get, get flying as well. So, um, you know, this this year I've managed to get back up in helicopters again. So I'm delighted. I'm back back. How, how were you? Does it come back? So it, like riding it came a bike? back straight. It's just like riding a bike. It, it came back straight away. One morning, and that was me, all checked out, ready to go. I haven't flown a helicopter for ages. I mean, do you have to? Because you you haven't kept your hours up within a helicopter. So do you have to go all the way again? Uh, no, no, it was just a bit of ground school, quick refresher flight, exam. And you are an and astronaut. Done, so. I mean, you know, I think, I think one space hour counts for about a thousand normal hours, doesn't it? I would imagine. Uh, you're going to go, you're hoping to go up to space again, aren't you? I'd love to go up to space again, yeah. Some of my classmates have already had their second mission. Luca and, and um, Alex and Tom are from France goes next year back to the space station. So we're all starting to have our second missions now. And is yours guaranteed? Uh, it's not guaranteed, but it's looking very likely between now and 2024. Tim, what would you like people to take from this book i would like people to take the you know sometimes your route to where you want to go to doesn't have to be all planned out it can be an incremental journey and uh, i've just enjoyed the journey you know i wasn't thinking about the destination as a, as a young lad as a teenager as a boy in my or as a man in my 20s i was just enjoying the journey and i got there uh, i didn't have good a levels i went back to school at 33 i got a degree i worked really hard you can always turn your life around you can always achieve what you want to do it's never too late anything you want to say before you go anything else uh, I've loved talking to you guys thank you very much for having me on the show you are awesome and you're welcome back anytime that is Tim Peake astronaut his book is amazing it's amazing Tim Peake limitless soldier pilot parent astronaut boom the best of the Chris Evans breakfast show with Sky on Virgin Radio thank you so much for listening to this the podcast of the Virgin Radio breakfast show don't forget you can subscribe and get it every week from wherever you get your podcast and you will never Never miss the weekly roundup of all the best bits from our Virgin Radio Breakfast Show with Sky.